G'day folks, welcome to another episode of Manacast where we talk about intersections of faith, economy, ecology and stuff. This is Jonathan Cornford here speaking to you as usual from the land of the Jar Jawarung in Bendigo, Central Victoria. For today's episode we've got something a bit different. Instead of Jacob and I having a conversation, we've got a recording of a public lecture I gave in Eltham. Uh, I was invited to give a lecture um, at uh, the Southern Cross Community Church hosts um, periodically in Eltham a series of public lectures. And so uh, the lecture I gave uh, to the folk that came along was entitled Towards a Downshifting Economy. And uh, as you'll hear, uh, the lecture is essentially something of an ambit claim for a new political vision of the Australian way of life. I hope you find it interesting. Well, thank you, Sally, and I'm really happy to be here. And I know some of you guys and met some of you before, but um, hopefully I'll get to meet some of the rest of you afterwards. Um, so as I've just said, I, my background, my first training really was in political economy. Um, but these days I tend to work and speak more as a theologian, albeit largely on issues to do with politics and the economy. Today will be a bit different though. Um, theological concerns are going to take a complete backseat for me, and I'm really going to talk primarily about issues that concern the broader Australian public, whatever your religious perspective, and I'm going to speak in terms that I think that are understandable for everyone. It will be quickly apparent, however, that as we get into this subject matter, it very quickly moves into questions of values and worldview how we interpret life and the meaning of life, the universe and everything, that sort of stuff. So I'd be less than honest if I didn't confess that the sorts of ideas I'm going to talk about are fully grounded in my Christian worldview. And they're, an, if you like, an outworking of, of the heritage of thinking that I've, I've ha had from that, from that background. Uh, but I think, and I hope you'll see, that that doesn't mean uh, you need to share that worldview to agree with these ideas. And in fact, I know there's lots of people of different faiths and non-faith who are converging on many of these same ideas as well. So I, I did want to make that point especially though, especially for the Christians in the room, because in Australia today there's still I think a pretty, wo amongst Australian Christians, a woefully inadequate view that Christianity has anything at all to say about the matters I'm going to talk about today, let alone to make a, a contribution to a broader public and plural debate. So my talk today will almost wholly be on so-called secular matters, but you'll forgive me if I can't resist from just making the odd theological aside here and there. And just to prove the point, I'm going to begin with the story of a recent epiphany I, just, I had. So I was in the supermarket the other day, and I noted that Samboy cheese and onion chips are now $5, or $5.25 to be precise. Now that may seem a fairly random example to you, but for me, Samboy cheese and onion chips represent the pinnacle of potato chips, <laughs> which is itself a, a food group which has something like a sacramental significance <laughs> for me. So this was a light bulb moment for me. Yeah, 
prices really have gone up. Now, everyone knows prices have gone up and we're seeing that all the time and we're all feeling some pain. But some are feeling more pain than others. So the price of non-discretionary food expenditure, that's the price of food, housing, petrol, energy, that's rising faster than the price of non-discretionary food, non-discretionary expenditure. Things like TVs and overseas holidays. So that is the price of things that make up the bulk of the budget of low-income families is rising faster than the price of the things that make up a large part of the budget of high-income fa families. As the economist Richard Dennis puts it, the price of living poorly is going up faster than the price of living richly. So while I fret about my Sandboy chips, there's an increasing number of families who are facing a real cost of living crisis in Australia. Now, in the language of our politicians and the media and the Reserve Bank, we're in a period of inflation. And inflation is simply the technical word that we use to say that prices are going up. However, the term inflation is a little bit misleading and also a bit unhelpful because it comes with a baggage of about 30 years of monetary policy in which inflation has been understood as primarily caused by rising wages. And indeed, inflation is the central economic villain that the Reserve Bank, the independent Reserve Bank, was appointed, the valiant and independent Reserve Bank was appointed to fight armed only with interest rates. So yes, as everyone knows, we are in the midst of an inflationary period at the moment. However, this time is different. As I've just said, under the standard economic orthodoxy, still dominant in the Reserve Bank, inflation is a product of rising wages, which is the sign of an overheating economy. So raising interest rates is the undiscriminating bucket of cold water that they use to try and cool the whole thing down and eventually to try and bring wages and prices back under control. The problem is, the rising prices we see today are not the product of rising wages, but of something rather different. In particular, they're the product of external shocks in the global system, primarily the impact of the COVID pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which we all know, right? Behind these external shocks as well, there's also been, largely unnoticed, a steadily rising tide of resource scarcity uh, in the global system, particularly in areas such as critical minerals. And behind that, there has been an even faster rising tide of corporate profit taking in the supply chain. So last year, in Australia, real wages fell by 4.5% which is its largest single fall ever. While the profits of, our, of large corporations, and especially those in key sectors, um, where they're able to ex exploit supply chain disruption or consumer desperation or their own market power, their profits have gone up radically. So over COVID, mining profits rose by 89%. In the last 18 months or so, Coles and Woolies and the big four banks have all recorded bumper profits. According to Jim Stanford from the Centre for Future Work, 
Uh, quote, inflation would have stayed within or near the Reserve Bank target band, that's where they want to keep inflation, if companies had not squeezed consumers through their excessive price increases. To put it simply, large companies have exploited real conditions of supply constraint to make bigger profits and so driven the cost of living crisis that we now find ourselves in. Some of you may have heard that just on Thursday, I think it was, the Fair Work Commission announced a reasonable, quite a large wage rise for minimum and award wage um, earners. And if you saw that report, you would have seen it immediately followed by another report on virtually any media outlet that reported it, that the business lobby are arguing that this is a danger to further inflation. Now you see that every time there's some sort of wage rise, despite the fact that it has been pretty clearly shown that in this inflation, corporate profits represent a vastly higher proportion of that inflation than wages. And yet we never see when Woolies report a bumper profit, anyone talking about inflation. Meanwhile, the Reserve Bank continues to fight the economic problems of the 1970s by continually raising interest rates, further compounding the impact on low-income families by driving up the cost of housing and forcing down real wages further. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to be giving you a lecture on monetary policy. I'm going to finish that, that little spiel there. I wanted to say all that by way of introduction to set the scene for what I really want to talk about today. Now, it may seem strange to you, or it might seem particularly insensitive of me, that in the midst of this cost of living crisis, I'm going to suggest that we should embrace a world of higher prices in which we can afford to buy less stuff. But that's what I'm going to suggest. And our current cost of living price crisis offers strong reasons for why we should do that. Indeed, the embrace of higher prices that I'm going to suggest is precisely to avoid the sorts of inequities and injustice and suffering that we're seeing going on at the moment, and precisely to improve the well-being, the health and the economic security of those who are being, currently being forced to increasingly dire predicament. So what I want to propose today is that Australia shift to what I'm calling a downshifting economy based on a new vision of the Australian way of life. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit that by the standards of today's political debate, the ideas I'm going to discuss with you today exist in the world of political fairy tales. Or rather, as I prefer to put it, this is going to be an exercise in political imagination. For the, next for the duration of the next 30 minutes or so, I want you just to put aside the fact that the things I talk about are completely unworkable in our current political environment and just settle into a story of a world that might be. Now, why would I waste your time asking you to do that? Because even though these ideas are untenable in the current world of politics, they are actually imminently viable in a practical and economic and a policy sense. Many of them are indeed ready to go now if we had the political will to pursue them. The great blockage to a more sustainable and equity 
equitable economy in our time is not that of ideas and know-how, but simply of political imagination and political will. What we really need is simply more people to be talking about the things that our politicians won't talk about. So that's really what I see my job as here today, and it's what I'm going to commend to you as your job as well. The difference between the fringe ideas of daydreamers and the imperatives, imperatives of common sense policy are about a decade, I reckon, maybe less these days. So in what follows, I'm going to talk about what I mean by a downshifting economy, why we need a downshifting economy, what a downshifting economy might look like, and I'll say something to finish up about what is required to get us there. So what do I mean by a downshifting economy? Well, I imagine many of you have heard of the term downshifting to apply to people who choose to cut back their paid work and accept living on a lower income in order to simplify their lives, to live at a slower pace and a smaller scale. Most who undertake this reduction in work income and consumption do so for both reasons of personal well-being or quality of life and in order to reduce their ecological footprint. Downshifting often comes accompanied by a whole bundle of practices in the realm of sustainability and ethical consumption. Nearly all downshifters do it in order to have more time to devote to some other pursuit whether that be family or community, the arts, social justice, sustainability, or all of the above. So my wife and I made this choice almost 30 years ago when we got, got married, except technically we didn't downshift, we just never shifted up. Currently our income places us in the bottom 30% of Australian households in an, by an income measure, which is a step up from the bottom 20% for where we've been for most of our marriage. So what is the link between income and happiness? Well, everyone pays lip service to the idea that money doesn't buy us happiness. But we do tend to be rather impressed by the fact that it buys a hell of a lot of other stuff, doesn't it? Now, there have been a lot of studies now about the link between income and happiness internationally now for about uh, three decades or so. And the findings from those studies are quite robust, actually. And to summarise them, the key findings from it looks something like this. If you ask people how much money they would need to be content or to be happy, the answer generally comes in round about 20% more. Now that figure seems to apply whether people are on $20,000, $50,000 or $500,000 contentedness looks to lie just about 20% in front of us. Now, when people experience a rise in income, they generally experience a rise in happiness. But this is temporary. Before long, their happiness levels revert to about where they were before. This is what psychologists and economists call habituation, the new normal. Now, this phenomenon applies to all levels of the income strata except one. When the bottom strata of income earners receive an increase in income, 
they experience an increase in happiness which is long-lasting in its effect. Now, conversely, when people experience a reduction in income, there is also a reduction in happiness. Surprise, surprise. However, this effect is long-lasting. It's not temporary. And this also seems to be almost universal. But there is one clear exception. People who voluntarily choose to live on a lower income for values-based reasons, when they drop in income, they ex experience an increase in happiness. And that effect is long-lasting. Now, the final thing to say about the relationship between income and happiness, and this is a very robust finding across international experience, is that the larger the gap between the top income earners and the bottom income earners, the less happy everyone is. Conversely, the smaller the gap between the top income earners and the bottom income earners, that is the more equitable the society, the happier everyone is. Now let's put this in perspective. Australia is an incredibly affluent society. Although Kim and I, by choice, are among the bottom 30% of Australian households in income terms, globally we are in the top 15% of income earners. Australians are the seventh highest income earners in the world and we have the third highest net household wealth. So let's be clear, downshifting in Australia is generally not a choice to be poor. It's a choice to move from vast affluence to, little less, to a little less affluence. Now, I would personally recommend downshifting as a lifestyle choice for most Australians. Not all, because I think there are still some Australians for whom they need the opposite movement. But today, what I want to suggest is that we pursue a kind of downshifting at the level of the national economy. That is, we pursue an economy in which there is a structural reduction in the material throughput and in the energy consumption of Australian households, businesses and industry. To be blunt, we pursue an economy in which Australians have and use less stuff. And to do that requires, amongst other things, that most things, but crucially not everything, become more expensive, which means that real incomes will be lower. You can now see that I wasn't exaggerating when I said that these ideas are not politically tenable at the moment. In fact, what I've just said constitutes a, an unspeakable heresy to all the major political parties, and I'd include the Greens in that as well. It would be seen as instantaneous political suicide to to utter such thoughts. As we all know, the Australian way of life, favourite term of Scott Morrison's, is a political construction whose place in the national conversation is somewhat sacrosanct. Whatever you might actually think about it, it's not something you can publicly question. What is the Australian way of life? Well, like all such political slogans, it's a shimmer that can be bent to serve different purposes. But we all understand that the acorn at the middle of it is that it boils down to something like a high-income lifestyle, high-consumption lifestyle. The aspiration, or the right, 
if not the actuality, to have a big house, a big car, and a frickin' big TV. <laughs> if I work hard, and the fine print is, if I work hard in the right sector, I have an inalienable right to own a 7-litre V8 Ram Ute, to tow my ski boat down to my holiday house, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. <laughs> Clearly, if we're going to move towards a downshifting economy, we're going to need a new vision of the Australian way of life. I'm going to return to this later. But first, why on earth would we choose to structure our economy so that most things cost more and our incomes are effectively lower? Well, there are many compelling reasons, but the first is that it's going to happen anyway, whether we choose it or not. The current cost of living crisis is the opening wave of what will very likely be an ongoing series of economic economic disruptions that proceed throughout this century and which, like a climate change fueled cyclone, will get progressively stronger as they go on. As we can see right now, when this happens to an economy that is unprepared, that is to an economy that's predicated on cheap stuff, dominated by massive corporations and by the ruthless application of market forces to all areas of life, the result is rising hardship for the lower classes, as we see, and a widening social and political chasm. We can see this happening in Australia today. We can see it even more sharply in the UK and the US at the moment. Now, why is this going to happen anyway? Well, I think most of you probably already know roughly the answer to this. And that's because the 21st century is booked in to be a troubled century. We are facing a series of simultaneous crises in the current world system, each one worrying in itself, but together terrifying, especially as they begin to feed back into each other in unpredictable ways. Just briefly, these simultaneous crises are, firstly, a multi-dimensional planetary ecological crisis, of which climate change is but just one component. Secondly, rising geopolitical tensions between the great powers and great power rivalry, accompanied by another massive arms build-up and the first shots in a new economic warfare. Thirdly, by the ongoing instability and vulnerability of the world financial system. We did not fix things after 2007 at all. Fourth, by the revelation recently of the vulnerability of the world economy to epi epidemiological threats, as we saw with COVID. And fifth, due to the increasing scarcity of resources, critical resources due to over-extraction, but made worse by all of the above factors. Now, I don't want to dwell on these crises any further. The challenges and disruptions that are caused by climate change alone is enough, enough to give serious consideration to the sorts of ideas I'm I want to discuss. The simple point I want to make is this. If we do not choose to restructure our life towards a way that we choose and like, it will be done to us in ways we do not like. But there are much more positive reasons for choosing a downshifting economy. 
Firstly, by seeking to decrease the material bulk of the stuff and energy we consume, and by seeking to refound the means by which we produce things and energy, the downshifting the economy is a move towards living within planetary limits. It's a move to living within, with greater harmony with the ed ecological order that we all depend upon. In theological parlance, it's aligning ourselves with the order of creation, no longer ignoring the givenness and the giftedness of the earth. In the more mundane language of today's discourse, it's moving towards a sustainable economy. Secondly, a downshifting economy would not and could not ask all people to reduce their material consumption equally. It would certainly seek to reduce aggregate consumption and therefore average consumption. But it would do this primarily by seeking, by constraining the current overconsumption of the top 50% of the population or so. Thus, a downshifting economy would seek to narrow the gap in the material standards of livings between Australians and especially the gap in the material security of Australians. It would be a more socially and just and equitable economy. Thirdly, a downshifting economy would be a healthier economy. I've already said uh, that uh, it would be, uh, promote better ecological health, but it would be a healthier economy in other ways. It would better support human health broadly conceived in terms of physical, mental, social, as well as economic needs. Moreover, I'm convinced that if done right, a downshifting economy would be a more healthy economy. It would be characterised by more, more varied and more dispersed economic units that are smaller and more numerous, and therefore more resilient to the sorts of instability that I've talked about. In summary, just as a downshifting lifestyle accepts a reduction, a voluntary reduction in income, in, in consumption to better accommodate the things that make for happiness, so too a downshifting economy would prioritise well-being over stuff and quality over quantity. Well, that's all rather lovely, but it still sounds rather like a fantasy. And the opponents of such ideas will, precise, will always try to character, characterise it as such, a fantasy. However, the only reason these ideas sound so fantastic to us is that the, our mainstream political debate about economic policy in Australia is so narrow and so devoid of oxygen. The sorts of policies that would begin to move us in this direction are not some sort of philosopher's, philosopher's stone sought by alchemists. They are already well known to us. We can find them in our own economic history, some of it quite recent. They are being, some of the elements are being practiced today by other countries in the world, and they exist in already formulated policy proposals on the table that have been given a good deal of thought by policy specialists in all sorts of area, from areas from taxation, energy, agriculture, housing, transport, you name it. The words of Moses to the Israelites on the cusp of entering the promised land seem appropriate. Surely the path that I'm showing you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us, 
nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So what might a downshifting economy look like? Now, I need to be careful at this point because my talk could, and in the first draft of this, did devolve into a quite a long and tedious list of policy measures. And I'm guessing that's not what you signed up, up for today. <clears throat> and I also don't want to pretend that I have some sewn-up policy package where all the pieces fit together that Australia needs if you would only just elect me as Prime Minister. Rather, I simply want to point to the fact that there's a whole realm of knowledge, ideas and discussion that's going on and has been going on for some time now, but which really makes it into our national political conversation. My key purpose here, as I've said, is simply to try and expand the scope of our imagination. So let me give you a picture of what a downshifting economy might look like. Firstly, a downshifting economy would price in social and environmental externalities much more heavily, most notably, but not restricted to, a serious price on carbon. It would do this through a mixture of taxation and regulation. Overall, the responsibility for recycling and resource recovery will be progressively pushed onto manufacturers at point of design, rather than individual consumers standing at their waste bins. As the price of nearly all new materials are go driven up by this and manufactured products become more expensive, a downshifting economy will develop a structural bias towards the circular economy, to resource recovery and reuse. Because of this, a downshifting economy will not seek and cannot seek merely to transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy. It must also include and incentivise an overall reduction in the energy intensity of our economy. We all need to use electricity in Australian households, business and industry. A downshifting economy would incentivise regenerative farming and through a mix of antitrust and competition regulation, break the price setting power of the big supermarkets and the multinational food processing companies. The movement will be to progressively raising the price of food at the farm gate. That's the price paid to farmers tied to improving the agroecology of farming in Australia, supporting biodiversity, hydrology and carbon sequestration in our landscape. Now, while the price of food, energy and most goods will go up in a downshifting economy, the price of housing, health and education will become far cheaper. And in the case of education and some areas of health, be return to being truly free again. Now, there are a whole host of policy measures that are needed to do this, including breaking some very large vested interests. But the long and short of it is that we'll require a massive reinvestment by government in these areas, especially housing. Now, this leads me to the next point, which implies that a downshifting economy will require a new fiscal state, underpinned by a transformed taxation system, 
populated by such things as a property value tax, a wealth tax, and a financial transfer tax, and removed of such things as stamp duty, payroll tax, and capital gains discounts. Once again, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. The numbers have been crunched around these sorts of policies, and they are imminently doable. Lastly, a new fiscal state also implies a transformed social security system. Personally, I'm not, I'm not yet convinced by arguments for a universal basic income, but I think it is one of the, the ideas or that should be considered, at least, along with other proposals such as an extension of the pension into a living income guarantee and other similar proposals. So there in a very small snapshot in an incredibly general way is a, a picture of what a downshifting economy might look like. Now a problem with what I've just, uh, the picture I painted, is that it may sound a bit too easy, probably does. Even though I do want to affirm that there is already a lot of knowledge and experience and ideas we can draw on now to move in this direction, there is no certainty once you begin changing large economic systems like, any, like the economy. We face the difficulty that a transition in this direction cannot be achieved in one fell swoop, and to try that would almost certainly be disastrous, and yet we also need to move quickly. Changes need to be made based on the best thinking and evidence we have available to us, but they do need to be introduced in a staged manner so that we can adapt them based on what happens and as the world changes around us. There's little room, I think, for being ideologically wed to any single policy or package of policies, whatever they may be. Policy is merely a vehicle towards an end, and there is nearly, more than, nearly always more than one way to skin that cat. We need to be armed with a good kit bag of ideas and policies, but what we need more than anything is a clear vision of where we want to go. I would argue is the absence of precisely this that makes our current politics so moribund and our political leaders such moral cowards. Whatever policies and tools we use to get there, we need a new vision of the Australian way of life. Now, I've offered some reasons and evidence for why we need this, but ultimately reasons and evidence are not enough. Let me read a quote to you by Gus Speth, who was a leading a senior climate advisor to the Clinton government. Here he is reflecting on his career. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Gus Speth is right. What we need is something like a collective spiritual conversion. At the heart of it must be a new vision of where goodness lies in life and a reordering of the scale of values that we live by. The current vision of the Australian way of life is so cluttered with protections of our individual rights that it allows very little room for a vision of what is right for you, 
for me, for our neighbours near and far, and for the whole community of creation. Theolog theologians know that our scale of values, or how we ascribe worth to things, reveals what we truly worship. The current Australian dream worships gods that do not deserve the valuing we give them. In Christian theology, the only thing that deserves true worship is that which underpins the whole ecology of life. Now, it might sound like I'm positioning to describe the role that churches could play in a transition to a downshifting economy, and that would be nice. However, the sad reality is that most Australian Christians are also in need of a spiritual conversion to a new vision of life. And I'm hopeful that such thing is actually underway in some quarters, but there's a long way to go. Whoever you are, the most effective evangelists for a new vision of the Australian way of life will be anyone who's making that shift themselves. I've said that to bring about a new political imagination, we need, simply need more people to begin talking beyond the bounds of what's currently allowed. And that's true. But it will be so much the better when the talk of such people is shaped not just by imagination, but also by experience. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you like what you've heard, please uh, give us a review or rating on iTunes or something like that and get those algorithms working for good and not for evil. In the meantime, if you want some more good news economics, check out Manor Matters, which is the quarterly publication of Manor Gum. And you can sign up for that for free at our website, managum.org.au. Managum is a ministry that's funded entirely by donations uh, from people like you. So if you'd like to support us, please go to that same website, managum.org.au.